you James chapter 3. Um, that's the chapter that I drew in this uh, um, planning of, of taking care of these things. And so I'm thinking about, I, I'm doing a little research, a little freshening up of the book of James. And I find out as I'm reading it that James is a younger brother of Jesus growing up in the household. He's not just a writer of a book or an apostle, uh, a disciple of his, but he was his brother. And I, I thought, well, that must have been something to be Jesus' brother. That must have been something, a younger brother of Jesus. And there, you're there in the house, and there are several kids. And, and I also found out that from this research that they say that James did not become a follower, a disciple of Jesus, until after Jesus rose from the dead until the resurrection and that raised all kinds of questions in my mind so you're there and you're in the family and you maybe you're sharing a bedroom with Jesus or or you got to share chores with him around the house or you see the activity going on and um, he sees he, one of the things that struck me is that he had a ringside seat to watch the perfect life of Jesus now I know what it's like to have a perfect brother because I have a perfect brother there's five of us in our family and I'm the oldest boy and I have an older sister but the next one um, down from me is my brother um, I have two younger brothers but my brother Spencer and he is he is a I he's about the most perfect person I know he was so sweet and so nice and so kind he's never said a crossword in his life that I'm aware of he just really is sincerely the nicest person I know. So I kind of have a, a feeling that I know what it's like to grow up with Jesus in the house. So anyway, um, there's James, and he's watching Jesus, and he's watching his life, and he's watching as he's growing up, his words match his actions, and seeing all those things. But he doesn't become a disciple. He doesn't become a follower of Jesus. Not while Jesus was walking on the earth. I mean, Mary is seen in the depictions and seen in all the uh, seen in many of the scenes we see of Jesus's life in the in the New Testament but um, but uh, James doesn't throw all in James doesn't become transformed or give his heart until after the resurrection and then oh wow it's all true he is the son of God um, I'm gonna become a follower and so uh, uh, James becomes a follower, becomes a disciple of Jesus, and, um, and he writes this book. So th this is the person from whose perspective we get this letter and we get the teachings. Um, there's a note at the beginning of, of James in my study Bible that describes his letter as primarily practical and ethical, emphasizing duty rather than doctrine. And so you think, okay, so he watched Jesus and he saw Jesus, he heard his words and he saw his actions. So it would stand to reason that that would be a thing that he would, uh, a point of view that he would write from. Here's some verses that support this view. Um, in the book of James, in James 1.22, he says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word, and the, the combination of words imply that if you get into the habit of being a hearer of his words, but not a doer of the word, doer of his words, 
that you're in danger of being deceived. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because that seems to be true. If you get in a pattern of hearing his words, hearing his words, hearing his words, but then you're not in a pattern of doing his word, then how many of you know that we get kind of in a, in a habit of that kind of action, even in a habit of maybe thinking that we're all right or thinking that we're doing all right before the Lord when we're really not doing all right because we're hearing his words, but we're not doing them. That makes sense to me, and that's practical. James 2.17 says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Well, that kind of goes with the other that he's saying, look, you say you have faith or you proclaim that you have faith. Let's say you say that you know Jesus, but you don't have the works, that the testimony that back up that you know Jesus. Then your faith is dead. The faith that you say you have is dead. And then one more verse, verse chapter 3, verse 13, and we're going to get to that later in my message. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So James very much has a sub-theme, uh, a couple of themes in his letter, but there's a sub-theme of letting your actions be part of your words, letting your actions speak for the faith that you're walking in. And so we have to give attention to that. Now, I'm, set, I, I'm kind of transitioning into this place in my life, a place where I find it easier to not do anything and easier to rest more and be a little more lazy. My body's cooperating with that because it's, it's, it's nagging me with this ache or this pain or being tired or whatever. And so I'm, I'm settling into that. I, I find more happiness and joy in doing things and getting things done. I'm not an adventurer, so that's not really where I burn my calories. I more burn my calories in projects and doing things like that. Please don't contact me with your project. I have enough of my own. So um, um, the, the, the connection of, of, of works with my faith or my confession, I have to, I have to prioritize so that... Um, I, and, the, and, the, and the prioritizing is by hearing the word, hearing the Lord, hearing the Spirit and doing what he says to do. So this is the topic that gets my attention, and it's very much a doing letter, but there's something interesting about that doing that I'm going to address today. Um, um, I think um, if, if you quick read James chapter 3, there's a topic that jumps out at you, a topic that he addresses. It's a main topic in chapter 3, that, and we're going to address that. And that's the topic of controlling what comes out of your mouth, controlling your words. This is what he talks about in James uh, chapter 3. So I'm going to hit on a few of those verses to kind of illustrate that. So in James chapter 3, verse 2, if you've got your Bible, look at it with me, electronic or otherwise. James chapter 3, verse 2, he says, We all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word... He is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So he's saying, if you're, and perfect there is a word that means mature, um, complete, 
it doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that, that you're mature and you're developed, okay? So he says here, if you have control over your words, then there's a pretty good chance that you have control over your whole body, over, over everything that there is. And that's a pretty big statement. If you, if you think you do, if you're walking perfectly in the control of your words, um, then, then he says we stumble in many things, and he kind of implies that it's, that it's difficult to reach. And then in verse 5 he says, even so the tongue is a little member, it's a little part, and boasts great things. And he says, see how great a forest fire a little fire kindles. So I'll ask you, have any of you ever, ever put out a little spark of a word that started a forest fire? Raise your hand if you've ever done that. I'll give you time. I'll give you time to think. <laughs> have, ever, have, you, have any of you ever said something small, even something that you thought was insignificant? It was just a little thing, but it started a big fire. Anybody raise your hand? Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay, so you, you can identify with what he's saying here then. And you wish you could take words back, but you can't. There's many illustrations about that. So then in verse 6 he says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defies, defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. So he's giving quite a picture of the function of our tongue, the function of our words, and what kind of a mess it can get us into. Again, um, um, I just relate to this so powerfully, and it's, it's just such a big message there. And he says that this battle has its root in a lack of wisdom. And verses later on, um, he describes a situation and circumstance in this, this basket that, that I'm going to read, this, this collection of things, is where these words that start fires come out of. He says in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So there's a contrast there between kind of power and control and meekness and wisdom. But if you have, and then here's the basket of things. If you have bitter envy, if you have self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. So there's one situation or one circumstance where your words um, are counter to what's inside of you um, inside of you is bitter envy and self-seeking but the contrast is you, you boast and you lie against the truth this wisdom does not descend from above it does not come down from above but this wisdom is earthly, sensual and demonic for where envy and self-seeking exist confusion and every evil thing are there but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So, in the world that we live in, if we're going to make it in this world that we live in, if we're going to make it, I'll put that in quotations, there's a lot of things we're motivated to do. We're motivated to position ourselves. We're motivated to... 
sound smart, we're motivated to be go-getters, we're motivated to do a lot of things. And a lot of that motivation leads us to do things that are not godly, that are not heavenly, that are not powerful in the invisible realm, in the kingdom of God. And if you want a measurement of that, just think about a time where you did something to defend yourself or make an excuse for yourself during the day or, or, or position yourself during the day and then at night you go, oh man, why did I do that? That didn't gain me anything or that wasn't, that wasn't a godly thing to do and so there's this warfare going on in this situation and James is clear what he thinks about our ability to control our words and that's in verse 8. He says, no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. No man can tame the tongue. So I'm reading along and I'm going, okay, so I, when, I, when, I re, when I've read this or when I read this, my first inclination when I read this about the damage words can do and the damage that these things can do and how they flow out of woundedness or brokenness, bitterness or envy, which are, which are um, di diagnosis of inner things that outer things uh, uh, display. And I go, man, okay, when I read James and I read about the damage of the tongue, my first inclination, my knee-jerk reaction is, man, I need to work harder. I need to guard my words. I need to not, I need to not speak things that are earthly. I need to not say hurtful things or dumb things. Mostly, mostly the worst things that come out of my mouth are when I think I'm being clever. When I, I, I won't say if I've ever hurt your feelings. I say, when I hurt your feelings, I'm sorry. I apologize. But when I read this, I go, okay, I have to work harder at this. I have to control my words. I have to do it. But then, then I read that James says, no man can tame the tongue, so I'm a little confused. So if no man can tame the tongue, then why am I left with the impulse to try harder? <laughs> so now, if we just did a blanket uh, uh, question about temptations in life or failures in life or things that we don't do well, how many times have we been expo uh, the Holy Spirit's exposed our hearts to things that we've slipped up or messed up and our answer is man I gotta try harder at that I gotta do harder at that that's our inclination okay but James has given us some really good stuff here and he's setting us up he's saying these these things are impossible and <clears throat> and you need and 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 so we say try harder but there's other places this isn't the only place in Scripture where we're told of a dilemma concerning our carnal nature that wars against the things of the Spirit. There's another place that does it really good, and that's in Romans 7, 14 through 23. Again, if you're looking at your Bibles, you can follow along with me as I read this. Listen to this dilemma, and you're probably familiar with it if you've read the Bible more than once. Paul writes to him, and he says in Romans 7, So, the trouble is not with the law, for it is a, it is, the law is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. 
Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. I have an awareness that what God says is good and I want to do it and I agree with it and that displays that I understand what God wants. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I, want to do, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Now I want to address something right here. And the, the Holy Spirit spoke this to me a few weeks ago, and it just seems like this is a good place to insert it. And I'm talking to you, whoever you are. You need to quit blaming other people for your sin. You need to quit blaming other people for the pain that you're, you continue to live in. You need to quit blaming other people for the challenges that you're facing. I am not saying that other people haven't hurt you, that other people haven't scarred you, that other people haven't invested lies in you, that other people haven't been part of what's going on in your life. But the reason that you're still in bondage, the reason that you can't beat that thing, the re reason that you can't whip it, is because you won't take responsibility that you are the one that has the power to change that. You need to quit blaming other people. Yes, they did that and it was wrong. Yes, it happened and it was wrong. Yes, those things came together and they made you think the way you think and do the way you do. It's wrong. But you need to stop. If you want to be healed, if you want to change, you need to stop. And you need to say, I am responsible I am responsible for stepping into my healing. I am responsible for walking in new truth. I am responsible. And in this narration here, the conclusion is not that I have sin in me, but I'm always going to sin, so I'll just, my spirit man will be separate from my carnal man, and I'll just lust away with my life. I'll just do lust but I'll be separate. That's not a thing. That's not a true thing. That's a false thing. That's false teaching. But in your own strength, this battle is going on. And it's led some of you, and it's led many of us at different times in our life to settle down into semi-defeat. And that word that Marilyn preached, uh, prophesied this morning, or spoke this morning, is a word to give 100% to God. I'm going to develop that, and you'll see it here in just a minute. Verse 21 says, I have discovered this principle in life that when I want to do good, do good and do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war in my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Now you say, well, pastor, why'd you read that? That doesn't sound like there's... That, that, that sounds like my life of battling back and forth. That sounds like a difficult thing. Because he's saying kind of the same thing 
James is. James is saying, the tongue, what man can tame it? He says, no man can tame the tongue. So there, no man can tame the tongue. And here Paul says, you can't have victory inside of you because sin is in you and you're a slave to sin. So what is the solution? Well, in Romans chapter 7, you've got to keep reading because he gives the solution. The next verse, 24, says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And in verse 25, it says, Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I want to obey God's law, but because of the sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. And the next verse says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. And because you belong to him, listen, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So the answer isn't try harder. The answer isn't do better. The answer is surrender. The answer is surrender. The best answer you can give is, oh, Jesus, help me. I don't care if you've been a believer for five minutes or if you've been a believer for 50 years, the answer is the same. Oh, Jesus, help me. I just said a dumb thing. I just said a rude thing. I just said a mean thing. Oh, Jesus, help me. Let me go make that right. Let me get back on track. Surrender is the answer. The control your tongue problem is given a solution in chapter 3. We're not just left to who can tame the tongue. And it's in this verse 2. Verse 2 of James chapter 3. It says, and, and I read part of this, If anyone doesn't stumble in word, he is a perfect man, a complete man, able also to bridle the whole body. He's using an illustration of control, bridling the body. And he says, he develops that a little further, Indeed, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. So horses, we put a, a thing. What's this thing? Bridle. And the bit is this metal thing, or at least it, that's what it used to be. And then that horse has that in there, and so when it turns, he's compelled to turn his head. Okay, so we say, oh, okay, so we, need just, we just need a bit in our mouth. We need to control our mouths with a bit. And then the next verse says, Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. So, okay. So, I control my mouth with a bridle. I, then I, I control my ship. I control myself with a rudder. Okay, a rudder, that makes sense. It controls a ship, turns it this way, turns it that. And so, <clears throat> so we're reading words, little sparks of words can start huge fires, and then, but we read no man can tame the tongue, but, but we ignore that, so we're still in a try harder mode. And we so okay, so I put a bit in my mouth, rudder on my ship, and then I think, well, no, but that's still contradictory. That's still contradictory, okay? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. I got to slip this in here because 
It's not a gun who kills a person. It's the person holding the gun that kills the person. It's not the bit in the mouth of the horse that turns the horse, nor the rudder of the ship that turns the ship. It's the rider on the horse that turns the bit, and it's the captain of the ship that turns the rudder. And so the answer to this is, you don't control your mouth with a bit, you don't control your ship with a rudder, the rider controls the horse, and the captain controls the ship, and you just need to surrender to the rider and surrender to the captain. And those things will come under control. You get that? I loved it when I saw that. I had never thought of that before. James chapter 3, I was always, okay, try harder. But that's not the thing I have to try harder on because I am not the rider and I am not the captain. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Okay, now, like anything else in our spirit-filled life, I wish it were this easy. Oh, Jesus, I just give myself to you, and then I'm just a puppet, a marionette with strings, and he just does it through me. It doesn't happen that way. He is the power. He is the direction. He's the strength. He's the ability to do it, and he needs my cooperation. So I'm back to the answer of when I'm in a pickle, when I'm in a difficult place, or when I mess up, the answer is still the same. Jesus, help me. That's the answer. So here's, here's a few things to help you cooperate. First of all, number one, I, I hope whoever's preaching next week, James 4, will forgive me because I took a verse out of there. Number one is learn the one-two punch. Are you preaching, Ryan? Oh, buddy. Have you done anything on your preparation? Of course you have. You've probably got it all laid out. Well, on this one point, you can say, well, like Pastor Steve said last week, James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is the one-two punch. This is the one-two punch. The first thing you have to do, we get this backwards sometimes. It isn't resist the devil and then submit to God. It's submit to God first. I don't, the older I get, the more I see the precision in the word of God. So the first thing you do when you mess up or when you're going to mess up or when you get up in the morning is submit yourself to God. Say, God, help me. God, I give myself to you. Okay? So invite God in. So now God's in. See, if you do that in reverse, if the first thing you do is resist the devil, then you're in your own strength a lot of times. And I'm not, that's good too. That's better than nothing. But first, submit yourself to God. You're in a difficult situation. You're in a trial. Say, God, help me. God, help me. And he, whoosh. He's there in a more powerful way. You're aware of him. He's giving you strength. And then it says, resist the devil and he'll flee. That's the one-two punch. That's the one-two punch of walking in victory. Submit, uh, the, the word resist there, it's antihistini. 
Does that sound familiar? In, in um, antihistemi, does that sound familiar in these pollen-infested days, these um, allergy-ridden days? It's the word we get antihistamine from, and it means anti-against and histemi to cause to stand. So when you take your antihistamine, it stands against those things that are making your eyes itch and your nose run. Well, resist here means to stand against whatever thing is coming at you. And when you've submitted to God, then you have the power and you have the strength to do that. So that's number one, learning the one-two punch. It means to vigorously oppose, bravely resisting, standing face-to-face -face against your adversary and standing your ground. So that's the first thing you do in shaping and surrendering your words for the use of the Holy Spirit. The second thing you do as, you're, as you find yourself in a situation of temptation, and this temptation is whether men, you're, you're being tempted to lust after something, or women, you're being tempted to eat one more quick trip glazer than you should, or, or, or whatever that is, whatever temptation you're facing, is look for a way out. Not pretend to look for a way out, but look for a way out. Look for a way out. If you go home and meditate on this, meditate on how many times, let me read the verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation. Everybody say no. Say none. No means none. There is no temptation that has overtaken you except such as is common to man. I couldn't resist. Well, not really. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Let me read that again. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If you've never heard this before, you need to memorize it. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. I just, I just couldn't. I just, it was beyond my ability to resist. I just, I, I couldn't, I ate two of those bratwursts. I just had to have a third, you know. I just, I don't know what came over me. Okay, I'll tell you what came over you. I'll tell you what came over me. <laughs> but God says, no temptation has come your way that I've not given you the ability. Look for a way out. Look for a way out. Give that a try with something that you're battling and you're fighting. First, submit yourself to God and resist the devil. Second, look for a way out. And the third thing, the third counsel I would give you is get help. Get help. This is one of the biggest reasons, not the only reason, but one of the biggest reasons of, of spiritual community, of church community. You can, you can be ministered to by the Holy Spirit at home. You can be ministered to by God all on your own. You can do that. You can get healing from God all on your own, all by yourself. You can do that. Every, everything you get from God, you can get from God. You know what you can't get? No, you can get this from God too. But you know what's done best in community? 
aggravation, annoyance, confrontation, support, strength, opportunity for testing, and the list goes on and on and on. If you isolate yourself, just you and God, that's a wonderful thing in many, many things. But in many, if you don't ever want your doctrine tested, just make it you and God. But you know, a testing of your doctrine is essential to stay on the right path, to stay in the right direction. Even when you hear dumb things from people, it's still a good chance for you to sharpen your sword and to strengthen what you believe. This is the steel against steel that we sharpen each other in. This is the gymnasium where we strengthen ourselves together. We do that in community. We do that with each other. And you lose that if you get isolated and are all on your own. Now in my life, God has brought me an expert at all of those things and her name is Deb. <laughs> Natalie. That was a little too loud of an amen. Thank you very much. <laughs> Confrontation, challenging, support, strength, ideas that aren't mine and come from a world that I don't live in. I mean, it's if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. Why do you think that about that? And it opens and broadens my thinking, and I try and open and broaden her thinking as well. I'll leave it at that. One personality thing is that my wife is very uncritical, and she calls me out when I'm too critical. Man, oh man, XYZ, LMNOP, oh, and she'll say, oh honey, you know, maybe they're on medication. She just, God has put her in my life to challenge me, to confront me, and also support me. All of those things. Friends. I was griping to a friend a couple of weeks ago. This, this control of your words is a, a strong topic in my life. I was griping to a friend about something. I don't even remember about what. But it was really weird. I was on the phone and I was griping to him. And I was done griping. I took a breath. And when you're griping to somebody, don't you hope that they'll participate? I mean, it's not a, a one-person sport when you're griping to somebody. So I'm griping, yeah, deca, 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 deca. Silence. Silence. Well, how about those Vikings? You know, you want to move right on in the conversation then. But I tell you, I got off the phone and I was challenged. I was really challenged. Because he did not participate in my griping. He didn't support me. He didn't challenge me. I'd have even felt good if he'd have challenged me. But he was silent. It was kind of like, yeah, buddy, do you see what you're doing? There, just sit in that puddle for a little bit and see how that makes you feel. That's powerful. And I thought about that for days after that. I thought about it for days. Yep, I was out of line. I was griping, and that wasn't a good thing. But friends can do that. The best one is the Holy Spirit. 
If you take the time to listen to the Holy Spirit and if you ask him what he thinks and give him a chance to tell you, he'll outright tell you what he thinks. And a lot of times it'll say, stop it. Stop it with your words. Stop it with those thoughts that lead to that. So in conclusion, James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, I read it before, but I'll read it again. The wisdom from above first is pure. It's also peace-loving, gentle at times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And this verse 18, listen to these words. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. If you're a peacemaker in your words, you will plant seeds of peace and you will reap a harvest of righteousness. So if no man can tame the tongue, continually give your tongue to the Holy Spirit. There's one more verse. You can start the music. There's one more verse that is kind of separate, but this kind of rolled over and over in my mind. Um, and I want to I say it to you and use it as an illustration. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone, this cornerstone, Jesus, will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Whoever falls on Jesus will be broken. But there's coming a time when Jesus is going to be seated in a place of judgment. And whoever has not fallen on that chief cornerstone will be ground to powder. The heart of my message here today, whether it's in your words or whether it's in your actions or whether it's in the hurt that you continue in or whether it's in the battle that you fight against this, this trait of the carnal life against the spirit life, whatever it is, fall on Jesus. Fall on Jesus. Let your answer be, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. I appreciate uh, Larry, and I appreciate the testimony that, that he continues in with the creating of these walking sticks and the opportunity to speak the name of Jesus to people when he goes different places. It's the name above all names. It's the name that does it all, Jesus. And whether you're practiced in the things of God and walking in maturity in God or whether you're a young believer, what God wants you to do is just fall on him. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Don't try and figure out things with your own understanding, but instead all, in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. Incline your ear to his voice and call upon him and he'll speak to you and lead you and guide you in the control of the things you're battling with. Submit yourself to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Stand to your feet, please. Close your eyes, bow your heads. Prayer team, if you'll assemble up here in front.
Right now, the first thing I want to do with every head bowed and eyes closed is ask you, have you surrendered to God? Have you said, God, I'm a sinner. I can't do it on my own. The things Pastor Steve said today, that's certainly what I've experienced. I can't control my mouth. I can't control my thoughts. I can't control my life. And Lord, uh, God, I want to make you my Lord. I want to surrender to you. If those who believe, if those who walk in you have to surrender you to get the job done, then I certainly need to surrender to you. I need to surrender my life to you and give my life to you. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer. Maybe you've never surrendered to God and you want to do that today. Then I want you to, to, to pray this prayer with me. It's not a formula. It's just the, the principles of surrendering to God. If everyone would, would pray this out loud. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. But you sent your son Jesus to pay the price for my sin. Father, I accept Jesus as my Savior. I ask you to transform my life and make me whole. I surrender to you today in Jesus' name.